With Wimbledon awaking from its year-long slumber, we look back on a tennis great who fell into a deep sleep. Bjorn Borg represented Sweden in the Davis Cup as a 15-year-old and, just after his 18th birthday, won the first of his 11 Grand Slam titles at the 1974 French Open. The late 1970s were years of incredible success, with Borg the undisputed world number one. But in 1980, in the final at Wimbledon, things began to go wrong in the fourth set tiebreak against John McEnroe. Borg faltered, losing the tiebreak to the 21-year-old Yank upstart. In the fifth set, Borg rallied to win the fifth of his five Wimbledon titles, but something had changed. This is the story of what had changed, and how the greatest tennis player in the world became the finest parody of the greatest tennis player in the world the world had ever seen. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. In the European summer of 1990, Bjorn Borg, the winner of 11 Grand Slam tennis titles, visited Grays, the hockey stick and squash racket manufacturer, in Cambridge, England. On the face of it, Borg's trip to Cambridge might have seemed quixotic, but Borg, who had officially retired from the game eight years before age 26, was doing more than challenging windmills to duels. He was on a far grander, nobler, and far more foolhardier mission, mission that might, come to think about it, have been tantamount to challenging windmills to duels. He was on that long and perilous road, a road filled with disappointment and melancholy, treachery and heartache, confusion and doubt. It was a road known to us all, the comeback trail. Borg was in Cambridge because he couldn't find any of his old Donnay rackets. Donnay, the Belgian racket manufacturers, had gone out of business and a Donnay racket wasn't to be found for love or money. Borg sought out Grays to custom make him some wooden rackets instead. Ironically, Donay had gone out of business partly because of Borg. When he retired, their strings to the racket market were suddenly cut. Founded in 1910 by Emile Donay, the Belgians built an empire that at the height of its powers saw a million and a half of their rackets being exported across the globe on an annual basis. Everyone wanted to be like Borg. Realizing this was impossible, they did the next best thing and bought a little bit of him in the form of a Donay racket. But it wasn't only Borg who sunk his original racket manufacturer deep in the tram lines of a dynamic world market. It was Donay's pig-headedness. Like hurling paddles, their rackets were made of the wood from an ash tree. And when graphite rackets came along, the Donay Brains Trust argued it was a passing fad and that it wouldn't last. Where have we heard that one before? Kodak, maybe? Polaroid? General Motors? When Donay realized what was happening, it was too late. It was a classic lose-lose. They went bankrupt, being bailed out by the Walloon government, and finally being sold on, while Borg retired to live the life of a louche playboy, date wet t-shirt models, and snort cocaine. Nothing wrong with that, I hear you say. We'd all like to live the lives of louche playboys, date wet t-shirt models and sniff cocaine. 
if only given half the chance. The problem was that Borg was so spectacularly lost while doing all of this that you suspect he didn't really know what he was doing. These sort of things just came along, and Borg sort of fell into them. After spending so much time trying not to lose on the tennis court, Bjorn was now two sets down and looking pretty disheveled on the court of life. Six months after visiting the Grays factory in Cambridge, Borg received a wild card entry into the Monte Carlo Open, traditionally played on clay. There he was drawn against Jordi Arese, a Spaniard ranked 52 in the world in the opening round. Not only was Borg sporting his new Grays wooden racket in Monte Carlo, he looked exactly like he looked in his prime. Although he was now 35, there was the same thick feeler headband, the same burst of golden locks, the same inscrutable Borg demeanour, simultaneously fixated on matters at hand and somehow strangely detached from them. He looked good. He was trim and tanned. His lean legs were still powerful, his arms still sinuous. A fan sitting in the Monte Carlo stands might have needed to rub his or her eyes. It was as if time had bent back on itself and you were watching yesterday, live, today. After the match was over, Arese said the respectful, vaguely starstruck kinds of things you'd expect someone playing Borg to say. Let's be more specific. What actually did he say? He said, quote, It was a very moving moment, one that will stay in my heart forever. Arese can be forgiven his lapse into sentimentality because, well, hell, it was a sentimental day. The problem was, however, that he'd just beaten Borg 6263, an experience that must have been akin to, if not stealing an old-age pensioner's chocolate digestives, then at least beating someone in the terrible throes of a midlife tennis crisis. In arming himself for a hoped-for tennis future, Borg had armed himself with relics from the past, a little like taking a crossbow to a fight with a repeating rifle. His custom-made Gray's racket was significantly less powerful than the Spaniard's graphite racket, and throughout the painful spectacle, Borg lacked oomph. He missed his old donne and complained about the new racket's handling. His hoped-for omnipotence on the clay of Monte Carlo never materialized. Quote, Borg without power isn't really Borg at all, remarked Yannick Noah sagely in the New York Times. Although superhumanly fit, Borg had also slowed down. What counted as power back when was not power now. The game had moved on, and the game had moved on without him. Everyone was excruciatingly polite, but the players knew, and if they didn't know for sure, they suspected. Borg was challenging windmills to duels. It was all so uncomfortable. No one wanted to be drawn against Borg, and it was the unlucky Spaniard who drew the short straw. They didn't want to be drawn against Borg because they understood that to do so would compel them to draw first, and so to beat him. Beating Borg was a little like farting in front of the king. Beating Borg would hand him a lesson in contemporary realities. It might force him to wake up from his long slumber. Borg was still held in high esteem. Nobody wanted to be that guy. One of Borg's many masterful qualities as a champion tennis player was that he was indefatigable. Indefatigability was clearly something he hadn't lost. 
Undeterred by his loss in Monte Carlo, he ditched the wooden Gray's racket, now that's something they don't advertise, and enrolled at Nick Boletieri's famous tennis academy in Florida. He practiced hard. He was on court for as much as five hours a day. He hoped that the old Borg was back and he carried on gobbling up wild card entries in major tournaments like an insomniac down sleeping pills. He carried on being dumped with horrible regularity. In 1992, he played in 11 matches on the comeback trail. He didn't win a set and he lost them all. One of the problems with coming back is that it's an upping of the stakes. You're both much braver and much more foolish, partly because everyone is expecting you to fail, and partly because you yourself are expecting to fail, because it was you who decided to call it a day in the first place. Building a pre-retirement career takes place within a context of open-endedness, where the final destination is as yet unknown. The final destination is known post-retirement, and although everyone's pretending that nobody knows what it's called, everyone knows that that's just bollocks and, surprise, surprise, it's called retirement. In this respect, coming out of retirement is a bit like coming out of rehab. It's never really a question of coming out. It's only ever a question of going back in. During his post-retirement bender, Borg's glory years afforded him a certain respect. At first the mutterings were soft, they were always polite, preceded by a doleful sigh and a shake of the head. As far as Ron Thatcher and Borg were concerned, however, and the muttering became more insistent. By the time that he'd ingratiated himself with Borg, Ron was 79 and went by the name of Tia Honsai. Nobody quite knew what Ron did because he admitted that he knew nothing about tennis, but here's a vague clue. Bjorn called him the professor, so we know the intellectual bar was set demandingly high. Ron touted himself as a massage specialist and practitioner in the mystical arts of faith healing. He was also apparently a dab hand at transcendental meditation and various martial arts. There was nothing slightly dubious, or so it seemed, that Ron wouldn't try his hand at or couldn't do. Ron, sorry, Tia Honsai, might have helped Bjorn in certain respects, but he didn't help him to get out of the first round of any number of tournaments spanning two continents and lasting a remarkable three years. Maybe Ron was just a master in the timeless arts of transcendental bullshit. Who knows? As a massage specialist, he was unable to knead Borg into the shape that would allow him to be Bjorn again after all those years of being number one. Ever since his first Grand Slam win in the French Open in 1974, Borg was synonymous with a kind of transcendental Swedish success. It was a success as gold as the golden cross in the Swedish flag, a success only rivaled by the band ABBA. But in 1980, Borg confronted a brash 21-year-old called John McEnroe in that year's Wimbledon final. It was to be a crossroads for the Swede. Borg was first seed at that year's Wimbledon, McEnroe seeded second. From the men's quarterfinal onwards, the draw was dominated by Americans with six of them in the quarterfinal eight, the eighth spot falling to the pole, Wojciech Fiebach, who lost to Brian Gottfried. Gottfried, in turn, was beaten by Borg in the semi-final, 
while in the other half of the draw, McEnroe beat Peter Fleming 6-3, 6-2, 6-2 in his quarterfinal before meeting Jimmy Connors in his semi-final. At 37 years of age, Connors was facing a man 16 years his junior in the 1980 Wimbledon semi-final. At first, age and talent seemed to be determining because McEnroe broke Connors' serve early and stormed to the first set, 6-3. Connors composed himself and rallied, taking the second set by the same margin. The third set was McEnroe's, as was the fourth, 6-3, 6-4. But so did the lippy New Yorker alienate the crowd in his semi-final victory over Connors that he received an official warning. By the time he arrived on centre court for the final against Borg, he was booed. Commentators, scribes and pundits commonly agreed that the 1980 Wimbledon men's final was one of the greatest of them all, a final only rivaled in later years by that between Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal in 2008. It all began hopelessly for Borg. Only having lost a set in the tournament so far, a tie-break to Australia's Rod Frawley in the third round, he lost the first set 6-1 to an upstart in a red headband who was appearing in his first Wimbledon final. Like Connors had done in his semi-final against McEnroe, however, Borg drew himself towards himself, breaking McEnroe's serve at the end of the second to take the set 7-5. Building upon that momentum, he took the third set 6-3. He only need to prevail in the fourth to win his fifth consecutive Wimbledon title. Let's pause for a moment here, shall we? As my legions of listeners and fans the world over know, I never pass up the opportunity to be astonishingly trite. So far, Borg's story has provided more than its fair share of cheap thrills, puns and double entendres, as well as the occasional reckless detour down the winding lanes of Belgian sporting history. But here's the thing. Borg, the son of a Swedish electrician, won his first Grand Slam, the French, in 1974, a week after his 18th birthday. Throughout the second half of the 1970s, he was not only the most recognisable face in men's tennis, he was probably the most recognisable face in world sport. By 1980, Borg was a tennis god. Women loved him, men admired and indulged him and tried not to be mind-numbingly envious. Prior to Wimbledon in 1980, he had already won nine of his Grand Slam titles, five of his French Open titles and four of his Wimbledon titles. On the slower surfaces, there was nothing he couldn't do. And now here he was, in the long fourth at Wimbledon, against some shaggy yank with a big mouth, outsized earphones and a denim jacket. And make no mistake, McEnroe was no slouch. Not only did he have self-belief and power and delicacy of touch, there were aspects of his game that were difficult to line up, patently goofy. When he was serving to his left as a left-hander, he faced you. You could see everything. But when he was serving to his right, he initially faced away from where he was serving, curling his back and arms around in a kind of corkscrew motion that must have been difficult to line up and therefore difficult to return. So it was that the two chased each other into the far reaches of the fourth set. Finally, Borg and McEnroe bludgeoned each other into a temporary standstill at six-all. 
the fourth set went into a tiebreak. Watching the video of the 1980 men's final, something else is worth commenting upon, the lazy deftness of the McEnroe backhand. Both men seem to hold their rackets lightly as an extension of themselves. The modern graphite rackets with their tight strings and big heads seem to me to have thicker, heavier handles. They sit in the hand differently. Can I say it any other way? There's something human about wood because like the sea, it's alive. Tennis with a wooden racket is a palpably different game. The wooden rackets, this is difficult to explain, perhaps because it's no more than a feeling, seem to encourage players to be more dexterous, more pliant. There's a Harry Potter dimension to McEnroe's backhand. You watch it and the ball curves and spins away from the racket head, as if by magic. Having survived four championship points through the fourth, McEnroe's big break came at 8-7 in the tiebreak as he served for the set. He served deep to the Borg forehand, but clearly not deep enough, because as he advanced to the net, Borg hit his forehand down the line. Lunging to his right, McEnroe could do nothing about it, as the Borg forehand return sailed blithely past him. As he got up off the grass, he could only shake his head in disbelief. At eight all, the tie-break needed a little break of its own, but it still had some way yet to go. As the fourth set tie-break approached the 15th minute, Borg remained poised, betraying little emotion. By contrast, McEnroe was all emotion. It wasn't the all-out emotion that led to him being given official warning in his semi-final against Connors, but it was certainly there. He shook his head. He blew on his hands. With his free hand, he pulled his sweaty shirt away from his shoulder. At one point, when beaten by a Borg passing shot when he came to the net, it looked as though he was about to burst into tears. Late in the tiebreak, with McEnroe serving for the set at 14-13 up, he followed up a good serve and volleyed Borg's service return into the net. As a result of the mistake, McEnroe was paralyzed with frustration. A second or two later, and his hands went briefly to his hips. After that, his hands went to his head in a sort of what-the-fuck horror. You think for a passing second that McEnroe might have a breakdown. If not, he'll break his racket, smashing it to smithereens right before your eyes, possibly over his head. At 15 all in the tiebreak, commentator Dan Maskell says, quote, I don't ever remember seeing a tiebreak like this, and I've seen a good few ones. From the vantage point of 2023, we know that he doesn't know what he's talking about because he doesn't know what's yet to come. He has no idea. Rogers to come and Rafa and Novak, they're all to come. The golden years are up ahead and not back behind. He doesn't know this, but we do. So in a funny way, Dan's words are the equivalent of a wooden racket. They are from so long ago, they might almost come to us from another galaxy. As I listen to them and replay them in my head, I can only chuckle. They are exquisitely poignant as they roll innocently across time and the years. Old Dan, what a card, what little do you know. By now, even Borg was showing signs of being rattled. In the moments before he clipped a backhand return from McEnroe into the net to give McEnroe the tiebreak 18-16, he looked giddy. 
He was walking behind a baseline in little circles, not quite sure of himself, not quite sure which ball boy or girl from whom to receive the next ball. He looked, to use a word I've always wanted to smuggle into one of my podcasts, discombobulated. But he gathered himself. He made the serve but fluffed McEnroe's return. It was two all. The fifth set was approaching like the angel of history. Borg won at 8-6 to take his fifth consecutive Wimbledon title, but he was spooked by the fourth set tiebreak. The world could only accommodate one best tennis player in the world. Perhaps he was no longer it. After winning the last of his five Wimbledon titles in 1980, Borg reached four more finals. He won the last of his six French Open titles in 1981, but months later lost to McEnroe at Wimbledon. He also lost two consecutive U.S. Open finals, both of them to McEnroe. At the second of the two U.S. Open losses, Borg didn't hang around for the ceremony, literally walking out of the game. He later apologized to McEnroe. Borg was not a man for half measures, and when he walked out of the game, he really did walk out of the game. It is tempting to suggest that he didn't simply walk out of the game, he walked as far away from it as it was possible to go. He carried on walking for years, until he wandered foolishly onto the comeback trail, where he went searching for his wooden racket. He embarked on wild parties in Bermuda. He parted with his first Romanian wife, Mariana Simonescu, in 1984. He fell in love with a Swedish model, later shacking up with an older Italian starlet of questionable talent. Perhaps he was practicing for his encounter with Ron. He attempted suicide. She attempted suicide. He complained. This is heartbreaking funny that the Swedish media had ruined his life. He entered the fashion business with a line of clothes and Bjorn Borg underwear. I'm happy to report that, like the dogged baseline specialist that he once was, Borg is still with us. He's not very interesting as a commentator and, I hesitate to say, probably not very interesting as a man. But he's hung in there, sometimes by his fingernails, but he's hung in there all the same. Welcome to our world, Bjorn. It's a place where you hang in. It's probably the most normal thing that he's ever done. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30am South African Standard Time.